The responsibilities of a modern chief people officer are both broad and deep. You are expected to have a business acumen that rivals your executive peers, while also having a firm grasp of all the trends that are impacting people and your organization. Not to mention being able to align your overall talent and people strategy to support the goals and the direction of the organization. That is not easy. Now, when you're doing that for a company and its portfolio companies, that adds just a, a whole new layer of complexity. And I'm excited to spend some time today with Matt Hoffman. Matt is the partner and head of talent for a venture capital firm called M13. He's recently transitioned into that role after a series of corporate HR executive leadership roles. And so we're going to talk about what that shift was like and what it's like to actually manage and advise that level of complexity across multiple companies. So we'll get into that after a brief word from our sponsor. 21st Century HR is a podcast exploring how to build better businesses through modern people practices and approaches. It's brought to you by my firm, Amplify. Amplify provides HR executive search and strategic consulting services that help companies build better organizations. From employer brand development and execution to global talent strategies, Amplify develops custom solutions that help clients from Hootsuite to SpaceX optimize their recruiting capabilities. Amplify also hosts a new community for HR leaders called the Ecosystem. The Ecosystem was designed to bring modern HR leaders around the world together to share ideas, inspiration, and support. Learn more at AmplifyTalent.com. Hey, everyone. Welcome to 21st Century HR Podcast. I'm your host, Lars Schmidt. And I am thrilled to be joined today by Matt Hoffman. Matt is the partner and head of talent for M13. And we are going to have a conversation that's going to span his role in corporate HR leadership, including his recent transition over to the venture capital world. So Matt, thanks so much for coming on the show. Why don't you spend a minute and just uh, give listeners just a brief introduction and background on you? Hey, man, Lars. It's, uh, it's great to be here. Thanks so much. I'm I'm really thrilled to do this as well. So thank you for having me on. So as you mentioned, I recently joined M13 as a partner and a head of talent. M13 is a venture engine, which means we do traditional venture capital activities by investing in uh, companies across primarily the, the consumer landscape. But we also are fairly unique in that we have part of the organization that is devoted to growing and accelerating new companies. And we have an organization that is designed to help companies in our portfolio get better faster. So we're not just the type of venture firm that creates, that picks winners, as we like to say, but we help make them better. And that's a big part of my job is working with companies in our portfolio to accelerate their talent capabilities, to help them get better at all things related to people and culture. That's a unique aspect of M13 that is very cool and interesting. And it's one of the reasons why I was excited to, to join them in that I could help companies themselves grow on the people side and, and grow that part of my career from things I'd be doing for just one company going to multiple. Yeah, well, that's interesting. And I definitely want to spend a lot of time there because obviously uh, in that environment, you're doing a lot more than cutting checks. You're, uh, you're building, you're advising, you're kind of an integral part of the success uh, of those portfolio companies um, beyond just funding them. And so um, I want to focus there, but I, before we dig into the, the role and kind of scope at M13, I want to rewind a little bit. Uh, you know, in your background and your path, you've you've been in a variety of different companies and industries in HR and people kind of leadership roles. And so I want to kind of going back to the early days, what, what drew you to the field of HR to begin with? Yeah. So 
you know, I'm, I'm pretty old. Uh, it's, a, it's a long story. I'm not that old, but I'm old enough to have a, a story. I, I guess. think we're, we're probably similar. So yeah, I can, uh, we're, 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 we're peers here. You know, when I was a bit way back when I was in college, right. If you really want to kind of go back to, yeah. uh, to the origin story, I, I was originally a, an economics major when I was at Cornell and, uh, I took this class in, uh, the psychology about kind of organizational behavior. And they were talking about, because the professor there was a disciple of Amos Tversky, who's, who's best known for working with Danny Kahneman on their prospect theory and, and the kind of the whole behavioral uh, economics that won them the Nobel Prize. And everyone has read Danny Kahneman's books. It's amazing. And he was talking about how people make decisions and why traditional economic approach doesn't really explain how decisions are made when you think about people being risk averse or loss averse and the benefit of say getting a hundred dollars doesn't always equal exactly the loss of the pain of losing a hundred dollars i just found that stuff so interesting it was such a more compelling and interesting way of explaining the world that i was like that's what i want to do right so the economic stuff is not working out for me i want to figure out how to go into psychology so I spoke to the professor afterwards. I ended up joining his lab and doing research for him in uh, in at, at college. I ended up going to for graduate school to get my my doctorate in organizational psychology with the goal of that I would be a professor like him and do that research because I just thought that was like the coolest thing in the world. And I wanted to help figure out how people make decisions in organizational settings. It just seems so interesting and compelling to me. I ended up not taking the the direct academic route, although I love teaching. And in fact, I still do do some adjunct teaching at, at NYU. Um, but I actually found that I could have more of an impact and do more interesting things working in more of an industry setting. So even though I don't work in academics, a lot of my original work was still in the research space. Just for me, I was able to kind of see the impact much quicker, much faster. And that just that just worked for how I how I get excited and how I get energized. So the, doing that, you know, after um, the academic part of my career, I spent, um, you know, a little less than a decade in uh, corporate settings, working for large Fortune 500 companies, working primarily in the organizational development space, doing employee research uh, around engagement, around voice of the employee, things like that. I learned a ton. There were some great organizations that I worked in, companies like J.P. Morgan Chase, Avon, that had really thoughtful, best practice, uh, scalable HR programs that I just learned a ton for around how to build best practice HR organizations. Uh, but I really wanted to go somewhere where I could have even more of an individual impact uh, than I could in a large organization, which I think a lot of people feel and, and wish that they could do. So I was recruited about eight years ago or so to a company called Return Path, uh, which is a smaller startup uh, headquartered in New York and Colorado to lead their people operations department. And in the beginning, I was like, why in the world would you want to hire someone like me? I've never worked at a company less than like 10,000 people, right? And here was a 200, 300 person company, but they're actually looking for that kind of scalable uh, perspective. And I met, I'm like, sure, why not? And I met with them and I just fell in love instantly. You just had this, you know, this incredible... Uh, amazing moment. These Eureka moments are like, this is what I need to be doing. Where has it been all my life? You know, it was an incredibly thoughtful CEO, this beautiful culture that they created and just coming in to help operationalize it faster was just like this perfect, this perfect fit for me. Uh, so I would really struggle going back to larger organizations. I love working in small organizations. I worked at 
return path for about three, three and a half years. I had the opportunity to go to DigitalOcean in its very early stages and get to have a front row seat on the rocket ship as we we grew in scale and uh, now obviously over on the venture side. For me, you know, the ability to impact people, help make human beings' lives better, understand why they do things in organizational settings has always been incredibly compelling to me. And so I'm lucky that I've had the opportunity to do that in large organizations and smaller ones, and now hopefully help lots of even smaller organizations through my role on the venture side. It's It's been incredibly gratifying, and I genuinely love what I do. And I'm very lucky to be able to say that because I wasn't the case for a large part of my career. But because I've actually had that kind of epiphany, I know how important it is, what a difference it makes when people find real meaning and purpose in the work that they do. And so I get really excited and energized to help create the conditions for other people and the companies I work for. Yeah, well, it's it's interesting hearing you kind of describe that path, because I think kind of going back to your academic interests and kind of organizational psychology, then being able to take that into a a large kind of enterprise organization and and see how that, you know, to see how they operate and then take that down to a smaller organization and lead to scale ups, uh, you know, before getting to M13, I think makes a lot of sense. And I can see how it, it, it actually sounds like each step took you closer to that kind of ideal scenario where you could apply what you had learned and then actually do it in an environment where you can have direct impact on, yeah. on how it's structured and how it's set up. I think that's exactly right. You know, at every, and this is a case for anyone, I don't think there's anything particularly unique about me. You know, when you take steps in a career, typically the what stuff isn't what's really relevant. Like, yes, you learn some skills, you learn some information in your last job that you can apply to the next one. But there's lots of ways, especially in 2019, to learn things, right? There's there's tons of information out there on the internet and other places. It's more about the how and the why that really sticks with you, right? So. I don't necessarily use a lot of the content that I gained from my academic experience, although some I certainly do. Uh, but how I think about the world was incredibly shaped uh, by the the academic training I've had in terms of the scientific method and being really thoughtful about hypotheses and data and getting really good at that. And then learning how to operate in large organizations and why people make the decisions they make and how things happen in large, bureaucratic, slow-moving organizations helped me to help, hopefully, I would. I hope it did, help smaller companies scale because I could kind of see what's coming be- because I've been there, right? right? And I think that's the case for a lot of people. The experience is not actually in the what, the why and the how is much more relevant. And then really smart, talented people can take those those frameworks and apply those learnings to new frameworks because they've they've learned how to think and why to think rather than just specific skills, which are almost never relevant because every situation by definition is unique in some way. So you really need to be able to, to be able to apply those to new frameworks. Yeah. And let's, let's dig into the, the why and the how, you know, when you were at uh, return path, you'd contributed a, a case study to Google rework on uh, how you kind of designed and developed your team effectiveness program. Um, what was the origin of that? Where, where did that come from? How did you kind of, know when you were there that it was time to build something like that? Yeah. So this one was very much uh, a team effort, right? And I, I, I very, had very little to do with kind of the, the initial kind of design and framework. But if you think about overall team performance, it, it just makes sense when you think about how people do their best, that really the unit of studying you should be looking at is a team because that's where people work. Unless you're in one of these rare organizations where everyone is just completely siloed in a box, 
you're not interested, you shouldn't be interested in how they do individually. You should be focused on how do they perform as a team because that's the vast majority of the time that they're going to be spending, right? And there, there's this continued obsession in a lot of organizations with, you know, some outdated approaches like stack ranking and being able to measure individual performance to the nth decimal because you have to know, like, who is, you know, you got to focus on the top performers and you got to get rid of the underperformers. And so there's this, this strange, understandable, but if you think about it, so much strange as are to know exactly how each individual performance, each individual person is performing and measure that, Right. But when you step back, it's like, well, people don't operate in vacuums. They don't operate in cells. They work on teams. So what do you really want to focus on? Not whether this person is good, but how are they showing up and how do teams work together, right? I always think of individual performance less as kind of can you measure each one person better than another, but I think people generally fall in in tiers, right? Like I, yeah. I think it's pretty incontrovertible that there's some gradations at a very high level in performance across people, right? Like... I don't think it's it's a big stretch to say that I am not as good as basketball as LeBron James, right? Like he is just better at that sport than I will ever be, right? Um, and so there's definitely tiers, right? But then when you get to like specific players, like is LeBron better than Steph Curry or Anthony Davis or Kawhi Leonard? Well, sometimes he is, sometimes he might not be. And a lot of it is very situational dependent around the type of team that they're on or the type of basketball that they're playing. So is it really useful to focus on individual gradations between people who are all operating at an elite level versus figuring out what are the conditions in which people play well or perform well on a team? And I think that's the same in any organization, right? If you're doing a really good job of recruiting and you've created a compelling employee experience and you're creating, you know, and your type of company is doing well, most people should be high performers in your organization, right? For the most part. So figuring out gradations between all or most strong performers is not as useful as figuring out, to my mind, what are the conditions in which we can set them up for success and how do teams work really well together? So that's what we were interested in, you know, and it wasn't like there was a problem to solve specifically. You know, a lot of times when you say, oh, we have a specific problem, what I found in my experience is that you're going to come up with a very specific solution to that problem. And it makes sense when there actually is something on fire. One of the amazing things about a company like ReturnPath, um, and I was lucky to work with such an inspirational CEO like Matt Blumberg and a chief performance officer like Mark Frein, who were able to kind of think ahead of things, is that it wasn't just solving immediate problems. It was more saying, just how can we get better regardless of whether things are working fine? And they were working fine. Uh, so the idea was just, can we figure out better ways to measure performance? And in a company that really cared about culture like ReturnPath, and really cared about collaboration and working together, it made sense that team would be the unit of measurement that we looked at. That's how people work. So when we were doing the work, we really leveraged uh, Patrick Lencioni's framework. I think most of uh, the people who are listening to this, I'm sure you have, have read his yep. foundational book, The Five Dysfunction of the Team. I still think it's one of the best books on leadership ever written. It's the, the framework that I use even to this day when I'm working with, with organizations and if you, if you trust that those are kind of the measurements of team effectiveness, can we look at different teams to see how they do on that and say, what are high-performing teams and what are the conditions around that? Um, and what we found is that, you know, the, the tr common traits for high-performing teams are ones that really focus on trust, collaboration, cohesion, a shared commitment and alignment around accountability. And that's, again, that's all from the Lansini work. But teams that were able to demonstrate that typically performed from a team performance perspective 
perspective better than others. And then so the work was in, instead of how do you remediate individual performance, how do you create the conditions where the teams can work really well together? How can you put in consistent feedback structures? How can you make sure that people are constantly giving each other honest, candid feedback with a development focus, not a punitive focus? And that was a lot of the work that the team did to make uh, the team structure hopefully work better at, at Return Path. You know, I think it's a refreshing take on performance because so so often we, you know, we in in recruiting and just organizations in general, we get enamored with this idea of like a talent, right? Or or if we're really yeah. lazy rock stars or, yeah. or I, I, whatever. I don't love you. I suspect that's the case with you. I really don't love either of those phrases. Oh, I I, I hate them. But I think it's also uh, to 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 your point. Walking through, it's kind of. It's not, you can have somebody who's an, who's an, a quote unquote, a player, a top tier contributor at one organization. That's not necessarily transferable. Like they're, they're successful in that organization because of how that organization works and the dynamic of the teams and the tools they have and the way that they kind of, uh, incentivize work or prioritize projects. There's just so much nuance to individual success that is environmental. And part of it is part of it is their ability, right? Like obviously if you're LeBron, like you have a, a very high level of skill to begin with. But if you if you put LeBron on the Utah Jazz, you know, or a team that's more defensive minded and and isn't isn't going to be scoring this at the same pace, like he's not going to be the same player. And that I think applies to talent we're building organizations with. So I just I, I That's right. I think it's it's so critical. How do you build a team that complements each other, that plays right. to each other's strengths? That's why coaching is so important. You you <laughs> see you see the difference in organization. You know, I think it's kind of a cliche to go to sports metaphors, but it really works. You just look at organizations with strong leadership and strong principles. They continue to do well, and you can kind of plug people into the system versus organizations that are just consistently dysfunctional. And that that's not a coincidence. And I think that's very relevant to organizations in terms of how you hire how you attract people, how you help people get better and creating the conditions. Like I, I think I'm reasonably good at my job in terms of the, the field that I'm in, but I don't know with any level of certainty that I would be great if you made me the CHRO of an industrial manufacturing fortune 500 companies. I suspect I'd be pretty bad at it. Right. I definitely right. wouldn't enjoy doing the work. I wouldn't be engaged and motivated by that type of mission. That's a huge part of performance is that intrinsic motivation. I know myself well enough. I wouldn't have that. That doesn't mean that my skills are any different. It just means that you have to help match ability and skill to the right environment where that's going to be successful. And I think that is actually the number one role of a chief people officer or a chief HR officer is to help organizations really understand that and not just hire a talent but hire the right talent for the right roles and recognizing when organizations change and, and how that shifts. Right. Yeah. And I think that that, you know, that's kind of an interesting framing for your next step, right? So you've, you've, you know, ran, uh, the, the people team at return path, you're in the people team at DigitalOcean. you know, now you've moved on to a new role at M13, which is, I believe a newly created role as well. So you're, that's right. you're, you're kind of a pioneer, in this position, like what inspired this move? What made you want to move from kind of a corporate environment where you're, you're building everything as it relates to one organization to more of a, you know, a venture, you know, uh, uh, kind of, uh, enabler mode where you're, you're supporting multiple entities. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm so lucky that, that I, I was able to kind of 
meet up and partner up with with two visionary founders in, in Carter and Courtney Ream and the managing partner, Carl Alomar, who I worked with at DigitalOcean, who really wanted to create something different in the venture space, right? It's so easy just to find examples of other things are working and say, hey, we're going to do that too. But I'm incredibly lucky that I met people who said, let's actually do something differently. And what could that look like? And so I'm not in a traditional role. I think there's a lot of, there's certainly many, many really, really talented heads of talent across the VC space. Typically, from my experience, they focus primarily on talent acquisition and recruiting, and then to some extent, kind of people operations. But this was an opportunity to say, hey, how can we take the companies in our portfolio and make them better, faster, much as you said earlier? And can we bring in someone who's going to help them do that? Will that actually make our investing process better? Will that help us enable help enable us to get better access to deals and better access to founders? And it's a, you know it's still a work in progress. The entire organization is fairly new. I think the early returns are pretty promising, but but that's actually what got me excited. I think in general, I'm the type of person that gets excited by filling roles that, that haven't been in place before and being able to kind of create the, the stamp. But the ability to kind of say, hey, can instead of working with one organization and digging in deep and really building it from zero to 500 or 1,000, would I get excited about working with multiple organizations and not necessarily spending as much time with them in depth, but getting really quality time to influence them at the very earliest stages when typically they wouldn't hire a very senior person at the, for the HR function or the people function and help them avoid the mistakes that lots of companies make in the early stage and just get better at talent and people and culture practices early on. Uh, that to me was such an amazing opportunity and I'm incredibly grateful that I get to do that because I love doing that stuff. I love helping other companies get better. Like I said, I, I really get real energy and joy from creating amazing organizations from a talent process. Now I get to do that with 20, 30, 40 companies and that's that's a very rare opportunity that I'm, I'm grateful for and lucky to do and it's something that, that really excites me. That That's why I moved was the ability to kind of work with brilliant people and just help hopefully move the the industry forward uh, by working with lots of companies at early stages and, and really create something special across the portfolio. Yeah. And I think that what you'll bring to them is a, uh, is an interesting perspective. Obviously, you know, you've got, you have two, you know, build roles, early stage build roles under your belt. So you've seen a lot of what to do and you've also, I'm sure seen a lot of what not to do, you know? And so what, when you think about advising, uh, you know, founders, uh, within the portfolio on what mistakes to avoid, especially at that early stage, like what are some of the common mistakes that you see companies making in terms of their, their people practices and people operations at an early stage? Yeah. I, I don't know that it's at the early stage, it's mistakes and practices that they do. I think the biggest thing is the things that they don't do that we can help them hopefully do, right? Yeah. So, so many early companies don't think thoughtfully or as thoughtfully as, as I would argue they should around people strategy, right? Because it just seems like something you can figure out and there's more pressing things and we'll get around to hiring a head of talent when we're 75 or 100 people and, and we'll figure it out. And so many times, you know, and, and I know tons of people who are the first head of talent and joined at 7,500 people. By the way, I joined DigitalOcean as their first head of people at, at 7,500 people. <laughs> right. And I get why they do that, but so many times they're already behind the eight ball in terms of fixing bad practices or there's just tons of gap or it just becomes a barrier to the company working as well as they should. So I, I would never argue that you should hire, you know, a very, very senior head of, of 
talent as your first five employees. But you should start thinking about that really early. You know, it, it seems obvious to say that any company that's going to create any traction in the world is going to need to have some fully fleshed out go-to-market strategy, right? They're going to need to have a basic foundational tech and product architecture. You just couldn't imagine a company being successful without that basic foundation early on. Right. But it doesn't necessarily seem intuitive yet that you would want to have that on the people side, which is strange to me. Like, why wouldn't you? That's actually the most important part. And so helping companies at least think through around talent philosophy and why do we want to hire the people we want to hire? Who are the people we want to hire? What are the type of behaviors we want to encourage? What are the behaviors we want to discourage? What values do they care about? Those things are just as important in the early stage as the more tactical strategy around go-to-market and product to have. In some ways more, right? Because companies pivot all the time in terms of product and go-to-market. But the foundation that you lay in your earliest stage around culture is really, really hard to undo if it's bad. And that stuff can help you, will make you go slower, right? It'll, you can just move so much fat. It'll help you, it, you it's harder to innovate, you will move so much faster and so much smarter if you have at least a basic framework of how you want to grow your organization. I've, I've just seen it too many times on both ends to, to, to know that that's true. And so a big part of what I hope my role will continue to be is helping companies think about that and being that person for them uh, in the portfolio, just to help them think those things through. Uh, it's really important to me. Yeah, you know, and I think you're right. I think a lot of organizations that don't uh, prioritize kind of the people aspects of the foundation uh, until they're you know 75, 100 plus, you develop a lot of bad habits during that time if you have nobody kind of thinking about what are the right habits you need to build or at least build towards. You might not be you know staffed in a way or resourced in a way to have like a, a best in class foundation at 20, 30 people. But if you're not, if you if you're spending no thought on that whatsoever and you quickly find yourself hitting 100, uh, 150 and they're like oh shit yeah. uh, we really right. need to think about this and you, yeah you can yeah. undo that but you've already have a lot of like systemic bad practices in place any almost any decision can be undone right but the question is what is the cost of undoing it versus the cost of doing it right in the first place what what is a trade-off that you want to do that right and certain things are really hard to change like if you've got you know 20 percent of your organization or the wrong people in the wrong roles what is the the innovation cost and the speed cost and the scalability cost of doing that? What is the human cost of people who are not doing their best work because they're not in a role that plays to their strengths or are going to struggle to grow and develop with the company? What does that look like? How much better could it have been if, if you had that in place? I think those are the questions that companies are starting to think about. And it, it makes a difference when you see the companies that are really thoughtful, how much better they're able to perform. Yeah. And let, let's talk about that. Like when you think about companies that are really thoughtful and, and really kind of leading towards, uh, I never, I hate the term best practice because it's so subjective, but kind of, you know, best in class leading people teams. Like what are, what do you think about companies with really high performing uh, people functions? What makes them special? What, what makes them kind of unique in terms of how they operate that makes them so successful? Yeah. For me, one of the things I'm most impressed with when I see companies do this is they're very thoughtful and intentional about culture very early on in the process, right? And I don't mean the traditional platitudes that you'll you'll hang on the wall like be excellent or be bold. <laughs> like sure, right? Like, yeah, you've you've got to do that. But I I think really 
thinking about as a founding team or early team, what kind of company do we want to be? What do we stand for? What are the type of of people we want to hire? What is our talent philosophy? Do we want to hire quickly? Do we want to hire slowly? Do we want to fire quickly? Do we want to fire slowly? Are there certain behaviors we won't tolerate? How important uh, is diversity early on and why do we think that's important? You don't have to have everything laid out from an operational perspective, but you should be thinking about those questions very early on. You know, I would argue that once you kind of get beyond the founding team, your first non-founding employee, you're starting to create a culture whether you want to or not. So you may as well start thinking about it. And as you get bigger, it's really harder for founders to have the, you know, by definition, every time you hire another person, the founder influence itself gets diminished. How do you make sure that you're hiring people that are going to be consistent with the founder's vision and add to it and create better scalability rather than worse? Those are things uh, worth thinking about. What are the type of attributes and the type of people you're looking for in your interview process? Maybe you're not ready to build a full interview, pre-brief, debrief, interview kit with directed questions at five people, but you know, you should at least be thinking about what are the type of people we want and why do we want people who are exactly like us because they're easy to find in our network, or do we want to find different people because that will create a more varied and more diverse and better skill set and perspective set. And do we want to hire for specific skills or do we want to hire for talent and potential? Because we know that in six months, our company is going to look very different anyway. So we may as well plan for that. Those are the things that are worth thinking about at the very earliest stage. And having that framework for how we think about people and how we think about culture and how you think about talent is time well spent by an early stage team just as much as a go-to-market strategy, the product strategy, the social media strategy. All those things are really, really important, from my perspective, at least. Right. Now, that... that makes a lot of sense. And I guess with that framing, and you, you probably you know cut into this a little bit, but how would you define 21st century HR? Yeah, I think it's, it's really that. It's recognizing that the world is of work is so different, right? And I think, and this is a positive thing, I think, is that there is a shift um, to realizing that employees have real, real, at least the best employees, right? which everyone says they want for good reason. The best employees have choices and agency in in where they work. And they have this real power to demand a meaningful employee experience. So instead of you know continuing to manage performance from the top down, 21st century HR is about developing and elevating performance, right? It's an appreciation for the power of diversity. It's an appreciation for the benefits of inclusion, um, and it, it compels companies to respect and appreciate people for their whole selves as human beings, as everything they, they bring to the table. I think so much of HR in the past has been about fitting people into specific boxes and building better and better practices to find the right people for the right box. But I think the, the advancement and the value of HR in the future is that you shouldn't worry about fitting people into specific boxes all the time. Let them create their own experiences. Let them create their own structures. Let them build their own containers and really unleash their full potential um, rather than just helping people live up to to advancements, right? I think in a lot of ways, there's a recognition that, that companies are growing. There's, there's things that you need to do at different stages. And I'm happy to talk about some of that stuff. But I do believe that throughout that, there's a consistent thread of rather than looking for ways to kind of contain people or have them lit up to live up to your predefined set expectations, 
the more you can create the environment for them to do their best work and break through those expectations, the better they will do, the better your organization will do. So for me, 21st uh, Century HR is rather than focus on personnel and processes, it's focused on building the culture around creating healthy foundations where you can trust employees, scale, get manager and leadership behaviors that drive that in the future, and then find ways to unleash people's potential across that. Yeah, no, I really like that definition. And I think it definitely is, uh, I, I share that view around like how you know, old school HR and legacy was really about command and control. It was yeah. about, you know, owning everything. And it, this, uh, you know, this kind of, this idea of, of accumulating power and structure and process and rules would be the quickest path to a seat at the table and all yeah. of this thing, all these things that we, you know, I think the field was so fixated on that really wasn't to the benefit of the employees. And that thinking has changed. Yeah, yeah. you can't do anymore. One, like we just know there's research that you're not going to get the best performance out of people, right? right. You're not going to. More importantly, like you're not going to get them. They're not going to stay, right? Right, so right. Especially you're gonna now. Get, you're going to get people who are very comfortable being told what to do. Um, and that's fine. But the whole idea around leadership is that you should find people who are better at their specific area than you are. Your job as a leader is to make them better and create the environment. And if they're just looking for you for direction, you're not getting the benefit of hiring really smart people who know more than you. Almost everywhere I've been where I've been successful, I've had, you know, direct reports who are just better at their specific area than I am. It would be cr like my head of recruiting at DigitalOcean is way better at recruiting than I'll ever be. My head of talent development was one of the best in the world. The idea that I could tell them how to do their job is frankly insane to me, right? <laughs> so cre creating the idea like my job is to tell them what to do rather than to create the environment where they can do the best work is bizarre to me and i think that's a big part of the shift um in in organization as as well at least will be in the future i think yeah and you know what you're not gonna get lebron james in that environment so we'll we'll we'll, we'll well, end it with another sports how, uh, much, how, <laughs> how much does lebron james enjoy being coached right like, yeah exactly I, I, I can imagine he's thinking the same thing right like there he'll never have a coach who's better at basketball than he will right he might have a coach who's good at creating an environment where he can be his best self and i think that's what the best coaches in, in sports do. Yeah. Well, Matt, it's been uh, it's been great kind of digging into all this with you. The, the last question I want to leave you with is when you kind of look across the, the HR and people landscape, what leaders inspire you? Where, where do you look to for inspiration in terms of uh, people that you feel are really kind of leading the way towards kind of next generation people practices? Yeah, that's that's a hard one. You know, I'm lucky enough, you know this because you've spoken to a couple of people. I've met some amazing people through this network that I am part of called People Tech Partners. And yeah. so we, we have a chance to kind of talk a lot around specific ideas. And I worry if I call out some names, I'm going to miss like five that are really great. And, <laughs> and so I'm not avoiding the question, but but I kind of am a little bit. A little bit, a little bit, I, but, I, I, but I get I, it. I I'll tell you a little bit, you know, the things that really kind of matter to me are leaders who are pushing the envelope and kind of questioning the status quo, you know, challenging orthodoxy a little bit. Right? Yeah. And, and we talked about this, you know, yep. in any fast moving, innovative industry, you always need people who ask why or how can things get better? Um, you know, what can we as HR leaders do to, to change our companies? 
help move them forward, create these humanistic experiences and you know, maybe even change the world, right? And leaders who do that are the ones that I, I draw the most inspiration from. There, there's definitely specific people that I've worked with that I've learned a lot from. You know, I mentioned Matt, the CEO at Return Path, who wrote this amazing book around startup leadership. I mentioned Mark, who I worked with at, at Return Path as well, who's now uh, at a company called Bunch. And I know you spoke to Dario, who's he, he's yeah. working with. He's He's been an amazing mentor to me and I've learned so much from him. Um, but I try to tr- bring in like insight from all sorts of people and every day I'm learning how to do something I never did before. The people who are really motivated for doing things better and always questioning are the ones that, that mo- most inspire me. Yeah. And you know what I, I really appreciate about, and I, you know, I th- imagine we're talking about the same kind of leaders cause I know we, we have a, you know, similar network with a lot of people that we kind of look to for inspiration. What I really respect about these leaders is that it's not just that they're challenging uh, you know, establish orthodoxy in terms of process and programs, they're also sharing it. They're talking about what they're learning. They're talking about what they're overcoming. They're talking about where they're failing. And that that's something that we didn't have in the past. And so when we now have people that are really pushing the boundaries of the field in ways that's never been before, but also opening that process up to everybody, it makes it, it, makes it so much easier for other leaders to follow their lead. I think that's a, a big shift, right? You know, yep. I learn every there's so many great people who are doing amazing things. And, you know, unfortunately for the listeners, they're almost at the end of this podcast, but I'm probably not even in the median of, of the amazing people you're speaking to in this, in this series, right? But there is this amazing trend where people are just sharing their experiences. And it's not about I have information that I'm going to hoard to myself because it will make me and the organization better. One of the coolest things in the trend and through podcasts like this is people are so willing to share their experiences and be vulnerable and ask questions and help each other get better. I think the community that's evolved, and you're obviously one of the founders of this and a big reason why that's the case, of HR and people leaders who are willing to share their practices is amazing. And one of the reasons why I know the one of the, if I've been successful, it's because I've had amazing people to learn from who are sharing their practices that's that's incredible to see yeah well matt i really appreciate you coming on the show and uh sharing your own experience so thank you so much this was awesome thank you for having me on thanks for listening to this episode of 21st century hr if you want to hear more episodes like this or read stories from the 21st century hr fast company series go to 21stcenturyhr.com and if you want to make your podcast just a little more awesome Be sure to subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform your ears desire. You'll find all the subscribe links on the website. And if you enjoy the podcast, do me a favor and share it with your peers, your network, your boss, and your CEO. Help me get the podcast into the ears of anyone who wants to know what HR and recruiting looks like when done really well. They'll thank you for it, and so will I. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next episode.